This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Josh Nicholas. It's it seems unreal. <laughs> it the the shapes that you find are just incredible. Incredible. And they have been used in the past. Architects in the past have used the shapes. I mean they that fascinate one looks like me. A flower. Yeah, they fascinate me. Yeah, they're just they are. They're the most incredibly beautiful structures and not everyone gets to see them that's that's what i find incredibly sad so this is dr penelope ajani she's a marine biologist at the university of technology sydney and she's chatting to producer jake morcom about phytoplankton they're basically microscopic little plants that drift around the ocean I have a mentor called Gustav Hallegraaf who studies phytoplankton in Tasmania and he came to Australia from Europe and he, his parents, I think, thought he was mad coming over here to study some tiny, weeny, little microscopic thing that lives in the ocean. And he, it almost brings me to tears that he turned around and he can now go back to his parents. I mean, he's close to retirement, but he can now go back to his parents and say... I think I'm studying one of the most important organisms on this planet and it could be the thing that saves us, you know. Or So, you know, not only are they incredibly beautiful and intricate and delicate and diverse, I mean, the, the shapes are incredible, but they also have the most incredible significance for our globe. Now, this isn't hyperbole. You may not have heard of phytoplankton, but they're incredibly important for life on Earth. They're one of the first links in the ocean's food chain. They're responsible for like 50% of the air we breathe. And they also consume a whole bunch of carbon dioxide when they photosynthesize. I think they've been up until now undervalued and understudied and um, hoping that that changes in the future. I mean, we really need to know more about them and how they function, how many, how many types we have. Um, And that's all for the future. So scientists like Penelope are madly studying phytoplankton. They want to know what's happening to them, where they are, where are they going. But most importantly, they want to know why. So when you are researching this, is it really just the task of getting a bucket of water and and going through and finding all these phytoplanktons? So that's something we do. We often collect phytoplankton with nets though to try and concentrate it even more. So we drag a net through the water and you end up with a, a water sample that looks, you know, green. And in that it's just teeming with phytoplankton. And in that way then we can search out the ones we want and pick out the ones we want. Then what I will do is grow those species up in culture, in um, incubators here that we have, and I will do some testing on those. So I'll do things like um, we can do toxin testing to see if they produce toxins because that's another part of the phytoplankton is that they can, some of them can produce toxins. What Penelope is talking about there is the way scientists gather data about phytoplankton. Basically, they hop in a boat, head out into the ocean, collect some seawater, and look at it under a microscope. But there's only so much you can learn from this kind of data. It's only giving you a snapshot in time. You can tell stuff like, wow, there's a lot of phytoplankton there, or there's not enough phytoplankton, or they've all disappeared. But you can't really tell why, or if it's happened before. 
you know, even in the last 20 years, we've had a species, the red tide species called Noctiluca, which occurs off the coastline here of Sydney, um, has now travelled all the way down to the Southern Ocean. And that's never been reported before. So people have been looking at the phytoplankton in Tasmania for many, many, many years. But now this species has come all the way down the coast and actually blooms in Tasmania. So we can see these range shifts, ha um, shifts happening. And it's only by looking back to see the, you know, the old data and having a look through the old data can we see if um, something has shifted or not. That's about all the data that has been available to researchers like Penelope. They really only have a couple of decades of data to go on. So they're missing a huge part of the picture. We don't have a lot of long-term records of phytoplankton abundance and composition along our coastline. The most we have is probably this long-term station that we have out off Port Hacking. Um, and, you know, the most continuous data set we probably have is about 13 or 14 years worth of continuously sampled phytoplankton. At this stage, we, we can see the patterns are changing, but we don't know what that means. Um, we just can't say at this stage. It's very early days in terms of saying whether abundance is increasing or decreasing. Now, this is a real head-scratcher. How can we only have 14 years of data? Humans have been studying phytoplankton for a long time, at least 160 years. So it's 1850 in Sydney. You're a rich old man. And you're curious about what's under the waves. You get in your creaky wooden boat and paddle on out. Ah, that's a good spot over there, yes. So remember you're rich. You've got someone else doing the hard work for you. Very well, Squire. Lower the bucket. Good, good. So you get them to lower the bucket into the water so you can get a sample. May we at last unlock the secrets of phytoplankton. Excellent. Good, good. Oh, okay. Good. Yes, that looks to be um, about three quarts. And you got it. Now take it back to the lab. So you get back to your lab, it's probably the back room in your house, and you put all this under the microscope. Under the light of my microscope, it has a, a, a yellow tin. I see that. And then? Is that... Carolyn! Carolyn! In here! In here now! Don't you see? I have, I have made the most spectacular discovery in phytoplankton that the world has ever seen. You can leave the, 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 the dishes till later. I, I must write this down. This must go down forever in posterity. These records must be kept, for the secrets of phytoplankton could be invaluable. I must send this to my court. So this is where it all started. Sketches, maps, letters. These are the first entries in our phytoplankton database. studies were meticulous in the way they drew them and described them, some of which we know are very characteristic and so we can link them to the exact same species that we can see today. So we can use them as references to see if we do we have the same species now. Some of them are just very 
common species, even though they used um, fairly primitive microscopes, they still give us some sort of record as to whether these particular species existed back then or not and where they existed. A lot of this stuff is still floating around. Maybe not from 160 years ago, but there are plenty of researchers from the past couple of decades whose journals are sitting in some bookcase somewhere. So we realised that, you know, a lot of this data was out there, but, we, you know, it's not available to people. So this is Dr Claire Davies. She's also a marine biologist, but she works at the CSIRO down in Tasmania. There is a lot of data that was stuck on people's computers, that was stuck in people's notebooks. There's a lot of literature out there about studies people have done, but there's no real data attached to that. And if you're trying to do something like if we think about climate change and we're trying to work out like how species are moving through the oceans due to increased warming in the ocean or something, you can't just go out and sample where that where that um, species is now. You also need to know where it was or you need to spend an awful long time researching into the future so you can actually get that trend. A couple of years ago, Claire embarked on a project to try and piece together all this phytoplankton data. Data that scientists had collected over decades and innumerable projects, but had never published. And so we've been typing data in from people's notepads. We've been um, scanning um, old journals and old exhibition reports and using optical recognition software to um, make you know, recognisable tables out of it. Everyone was perfectly happy to share their data, which is a really good sign of, of modern science. <laughs> and um, just very different, very different to the old days when data was yours and you protected <laughs> it all the time. And um, so now, yeah, so everyone sort of sent their data in various formats of Excel spreadsheets and you know text files and God knows what people come up with. But I mean, eventually we got all this data together. So if we go back 30 years and this guy, you know, he, he goes on an expedition, he goes out on the boat, he looks at, at the phytoplankton, would he have his own, like, methodology for noting down what he sees and what's there and all that? So kind of like everyone has their own kind of shorthand? Is that, is that sort of what it's like? Yeah, yeah, for the, for the, for the older stuff, yeah, it was. And, and, and so most of the, fortunately, most of these people are still alive. And so we could actually, we actually talked to them. So we actually understood their, their shorthand, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also depends on, you know, the ability of the analyst who's looking at the phytoplankton. What, what can they, what can they detect? What, yeah. what, what don't they know? Um, how good is their microscope? What level can they actually um, discriminate to? Because if you've, if you have a, if you have a, better microscope you can actually see far more detail so you're much more likely to be able to speciate something than otherwise you may just have to stick to the general level yeah so it's understanding all those limits within the within the um within the projects but in general like the actual techniques for sampling haven't changed an awful lot over the years they've become automated and slightly more fancy Mm. but in general they, they still remain they still remain quite similar so that's that makes it a lot easier so after all of this work there's now a database that people like penelope and claire can access going back years from the works of loads of different researchers all around australia they can use this to answer their questions 
So does this just, I guess, make your job easier and more efficient? Or does it kind of expand the horizons of the kind of things that you could question? Exactly. That's exactly what it does, because it gives you that view back into history so that, um, you know, if that data was not there, all the questions that you're asking have to be from now forwards. So as I was saying in an example of a, you know, the distribution change of a plankton. So if you're wondering why your fisheries collapsed and you look at the sort of change in the plankton and you can see, well, the plankton that the fish is no longer in that area. You know, you've got that whole time scale now where you can look across the time and say, well, this is how the plankton has changed in that area. Oh, that's mm. when the fisheries crashed. Oh, look, that's when the plankton moved. You know, so you're opening up to, and, you know, if someone has worked in that area before, it, it's saving you an awful lot of trouble mm. um, in, trying to, in trying to find that data because it's, it's, it's there now. And, and as it's available to anyone, people could just go and take it and go, oh, okay. So maybe if I repeated this exact same, you know, if I used the same methods and the same analysis that they did, you know, 20 years ago, you've got a really good comparison as to, as to what's, what's happening now. So, yeah, it's, it makes everybody's life a whole lot easier just to have that data there. So Penelope and Claire and their colleagues are closer to the beginning of this journey than the end. They've only recently cobbled together this long-range data set. But there are other scientists who have always had access to data sets like this. Since, since the museum was founded back in 1827, animals have been collected and brought into the, into the museum where they've been identified and initially um, those identifications were written out on three by five cards and there are these amazing leather bound registers with this amazing um, handwriting you know each each animal was recorded where it was found hopefully where exactly where it was found remember we didn't have gps's in those days (laughs) and the name of the animal and who identified it this is pat hutchings She's a research scientist at the Australian Museum here in Sydney. In her day job, Pat looks at sea worms. But when you go down into the catacombs of the museum, walking past huge filing cabinets and shelves stacked with skulls and all manner of other things, you start to get an idea for how much the Australian Museum has collected, how valuable and rare all of this is. During the Second World War, when there were plans perhaps or there were the idea that perhaps um, Sydney would be bombed by the Japanese some of our collections the most valuable parts of our collections were actually shipped out of Sydney and taken west of the Blue Mountains and stored underground in the mines out there that was how valuable those collections are because those those collections which are the type specimens are the ones on which the original description of that species is based upon so um, even then people understood the value of those collections if pat wants to do a study like what the phytoplankton researchers are attempting this is what she has to work with thousands of specimens in jars with labels on them which were copied into books and are now on computers. Probably in the late 80s, 1990s, we started to 
computerize our, to database our collections and we tried in, mo in many cases to actually insert a Latin long based on GPSs. So we now can put, we can now say what worms were collected in 1990 from what part of Sydney Harbour. And so a couple of years ago, Pat decided to use all of this to get an idea of how many species lived in Sydney. That was the question she wanted to answer. Working with a couple of colleagues, Pat managed to sift through all of the data they had in the museum. We actually pulled out all the records of fish, sea worms, echinoderms, crustaceans and mollusks from Sydney Harbour because these are the areas where we have expertise at the museum at the moment. Anyhow, we managed to, put, we managed to go through all these records. We worked out the, um, the, the name changes that have occurred and we came up with over 3,000 species are present in Sydney Harbour. There are more f species of fish in Sydney Harbour than the entire Mediterranean. So it really is an area that's worth conserving. That's right. There are more species in Sydney Harbour than the entire Mediterranean. Just an amazing realisation that Sydney Harbour, which is, which surround, which is in, entombed in the, in the largest city in, in Australia, has never had a comprehensive survey done in all its time. So it's, um, this was an amazing revelation. It's, it's really, um, I think the collections are there and they're, f they're available to any bona fide researcher. Um, I think we, we still haven't really mined as much information out, out of them as, as we can. It just depends on, you know, we can, people can look at gut contents of some of the reptiles and see what the animals were eating at that time, eating when they were collected. Um, I think it's, limit, it's bottomless as to how you can use those So contents. this is what you can do with 150 years of data. So imagine what Penelope will be able to accomplish over the next couple of years. You know, there are databases like this set up in Europe and America. Um, up until now, we haven't had one. So it's, um, it's just a fantastic um, collaboration to get everybody together. You know, a researcher like myself could, if I decided to look at one particular species like Noctiluca, I could hop onto that website now. I could download all the Noctiluca data and have a look where it exists around Australia right now. And, you know, possibly in 20 years' time or 50 years' time, we can compare how that's changed. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a review. It really helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER and was produced by Jake Morecambe. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.